Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about Current? You're going to like this guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank anymore? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy-to-use app. Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y, and download the app. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. All right, welcome to OK Computer. I am your host, Dan Nathan. I am here with the illustrious Lynette Lopez, columnist at Business Insider and my friend. Hi, Lynette. Hi. Thanks for having me. All right. Listen, you and I have a lot to talk about here. I feel like the last time I saw you was a few weeks ago. There was uh, some libations. There was some steak. There was some of that. We probably talked about a lot of the same stuff we're going to talk about right now, but there was a couple of things your work product that has caught my attention over the last couple of weeks that I really want to talk about. Of course, we're going to talk about, you know, Elon Musk and Twitter and Tesla and all that sort of stuff. You've been reporting on him for a very long time. We're going to talk about this SBF and the FTX situation. But first and foremost, let's just say this. I met you 10 years ago. I think you just started at Business Insider. I got to give a shout out to TRB. That is the reform broker, Josh Brown, because yes. I'm sure it had something to do with him, didn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. All I right. think we were probably at Ginger Man or something, <laughs> Yeah. Um, having a beer. And I was Business Insider's like 30-something employee. It was like very early I started there. I got there right out of Columbia Journalism School and I wanted to do something digital first. And that bet really paid off in a big way. It's interesting in the way, like you you graduated college in the late aughts, you know, you got a, an advanced degree and you just made your mind up at any point, you could have gone to the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or Barron's or anything like that. But you wanted to do a digital first. And, and again, you know, Business Insider, I will tell you this, the first time I ever read anything about Bitcoin was on Business Insider. There was a lot of things that you guys were really early on. You weren't simping for Bitcoin. You were talking about it because it was a thing that traders in the market or, or you know some interesting tech folks or whatever were talking about. And so I, I always thought it was just a really interesting platform. And I look at you and I look at the kind of arc of your career. You've gone from a reporter on markets and finance and economics and, and the like to now a columnist. So you wrote this piece in Business Insider yesterday. It really caught my eye. Um, and I really want to get to why you wrote it, but it was titled, The U.S. Economy May Not Be Screwed After All, But the Stock Market Is. Now, I thought it was a fascinating read, a really succinct um, kind of summary of where the economy is, where it's been over the last few years, um, what the Fed and the Treasury and Congress had to do just to get us here. And kind of when you think of the stock market, again, you kind of reference this bubble that was kind of bubbled up here, but it was not just in stocks. It was in a whole host of different risk assets. Now, many of them have corrected meaningfully, reminding people like myself who remember what the dot-com implosion looked like um, of that period here. But your point here is that stocks are not done going down, even if the economy doesn't turn into a really bad recession. So talk to me, why did you write this? And, and really, how bad do you think it's going to get for the stock market? I don't try to predict what is going to happen to the stock market in terms of like 
I think it'll go down X percent. I just think that what the dynamics that we're seeing here in this economy, the stock market is being led by, by rising interest rates. That's the gravitational pull of all of it. Rising interest rates are impacting the economy, but but obviously not to the degree that it's impacting the stock market. We're still seeing job growth. You know, the the companies that are experiencing layoffs were very frothy companies in the stock market. This whole growth tech names not really making very much money, but like using fun accounting tricks to look like make it look like you have cash flow, like you know, Twitter, Tesla, all these companies. So we're seeing that part of the market drag the market down and it will continue to do so until those, the wildest parts of the market get religion. As for the economy, we don't know actually what's going to happen to the economy because it's in a very strange place. You know, we've never had a pandemic before. We've never helicoptered money on people like this before. We haven't seen inflation like this before. Like, you really don't. We really don't know. Like it. It could be that the Fed continues hiking rates, and we somehow don't have meaningful job loss. Yeah, I guess I go back to kind of the the post financial crisis, and again when we thought we were kind of out of the woods at some point, maybe in two thousand and ten, two thousand and eleven. I just remember a lot of investors back then just kind of predicting a double dip recession. They were obsessed with it, and this was when you were coming into the business. You kind of remember it. And what was really interesting is that the financial crisis here in the U.S. became a rolling debt crisis around Europe and around other parts of the world, and that was really kind of suppressing growth for a while. And so I. I kind of think there's a scenario that could play out. I know a lot of people are expecting that a tailwind to the global economy will be when China finally reopens at some point next year. And I guess I wonder if that happens to kind of coincide with a a recession in the U.S., whether it's deep or not. And therefore, we just have a scenario where, you know, sovereign balance sheets are really high in your post yesterday, okay? You talked about what Greenspan has been saying. He'd rather overdo it. He'd rather over-tighten and then use the tools to support the economy. And I guess my point is, is that if they never run off any of the balance sheet, do those tools become a bit more blunted, right? That you know, The more times they take out the same playbook to kind of do what they're doing right now is like they're going to over-tighten. They just kind of over- eased. And then if the economy starts to weaken to a point where we go into a recession, then they start easing again. Yeah, maybe. Remember peak oil? Yes, I do remember peak peak oil. Oh my gosh. Remember, we've been so, we've been wrong about so many things. Well, not really. I mean, like, like, but, but here's the thing. Look at crude oil right now. I mean, crude oil, did we just hit peak oil again? And, and maybe what we just saw over the last year and a half or so with the commodity complex was just another reverberation of just the weirdness of this black swan in a way. So I guess what I'm saying is, is that like I, I'm, I'm deeply skeptical of the stock market and valuations here. I do like the fact that large pockets of over-exuberance, whether it be the SPAC market, whether it be non-profitable techs, whether it be, you know, I mean, the list goes on and on, crypto, that sort of thing, whether meme stocks, these things are all dying, okay? And, and the lessons that I have from the dot-com implosion or the financial crisis is that they're gonna overshoot to the downside the way that they overshot to the upside. So I buy your premise that the stock market 
it is in for a rocky period. And no matter what, I mean, I just think that the going forward, the return environment is going to look a lot worse than it did in the prior years to the pandemic because of the rate situation and the likelihood that rates stay higher than where they had been in the run up to the pandemic. We don't know what stable looks like. What if it's rates at 4%? You know, what if it's rates at 6% and Powell can't quite figure out how to get them back down? Like, yeah. I don't know. There's just, there's so, so much about this is open-ended. One thing I will say though, is I don't know how China gets out of this lockdown situation. They started easing a little bit and over the past two days, cases have spiked. It's just the vaccination situation is not getting that much better. I don't know how she circles that square. I think investors keep falling for this like China reopening story. It's kind of like Lucy and Charlie Brown with the football. Like, guys, until you really see meaningful reopening, it's just hard to see how she lets go of that much control. It's just not in its nature. I think that some people would say that India is in that same um, situation. I just heard that from a friend of mine who runs a uh, you know a high end global travel company. I mean, they are bracing for what could be a rocky few years. Like you know, here we are, man. You know, China started locking down in late 2019, early 2020. You know That's what I mean? Wild, and, yeah. and we're still talking about it here. So listen, I, I'm with you. I thought it was a very thought provoking piece, and like I said, you did a fabulous job of kind of summarizing of kind of where we were just how epic you know what the fed here had to do and what they continued to do and obviously they did it too long and when i think about the markets i've been in them for 25 years and i look at what happened just on a headline standpoint if you look at where the s p and the nasdaq are it doesn't seem too bad i think it's important to remember the s p was up 28 percent uh last year it's only down 16 percent as we speak and it looks like it wants to party I'm not in that camp. I'm not buying in. <laughs> the, the stock market always wants to party. That's one thing. Stocks want to go up. Sometimes they just can't. I, I get it. Well, I guess the other thing I would just say about the market is like last November and December, we had this unholy rally where we just literally went parabolic, closed at an all-time high. And I remember just thinking to myself, man, the higher we go, the harder we're going to fall next year. And if you look at just the chart of the S&P 500, you just see these you know, kind of palpitations but it's a series of lower highs and it's a series um, of lower lows. And I guess to your point, we don't know what's going to happen, but I know a lot of very smart people um, who've looked at lots of different market cycles don't think that the market can materially rally or break out of this range until the Fed does stop raising interest rates. And rally into what? Like the economy is slowing down. You know, there's not going to be What's good news right now? That's another question I ask myself. Okay, so we have a good jobs number, but that's that's bad news and that's good news. We have prices are going down a little bit. It's going to hurt margins. Is that bad news? Is that good news? You know, this is a very confusing time. It's very noisy. I really appreciate being around at this moment. This is a good this is a good time to be, you know, making jokes about the stock market. 
Let's let's hit something. Speaking of a joke, you know, Elon Musk is just kind of dominating. Um, just you know, if you're predominantly if you're in Wall Street or you're in tech, it, it really is hard to open up whatever you read first in the morning, whether it's your fact set or your Bloomberg or your CNBC or whatever the hell it is. Literally, three of the top ten stories are about Elon Musk. Whether it's about Tesla, whether it's about Twitter, whether it's about some stupid meme. Tell our listeners a little bit about your history covering Elon Musk. You put out an epic thread on Twitter. This was on November 8th, and it was, how do I know so much about how Elon Musk does things? I spent three years investigating Tesla at Business Insider from 2018 to 2021. Here are some of the sloppy, dangerous, callous things that I learned. And then you threaded all of the stories. It has... 33,000 retweets, 112,000 likes. That's kind of Elon Musk Twitter action there. Why do you think that thread took so much fire? First of all, I was sitting on my couch waiting for election returns. And I was like, if I'm sitting on my couch watching Twitter waiting for election returns, every idiot is sitting on their couch. So I was like, I'll just thread. And those aren't even all my stories. I have seen some stuff go down at Tesla. And Elon kind of reacts to everything the same way. And that is with extreme paranoia and aggression. And so you put yourself kind of in his line of vision. I started uh, investigating the company in 2018. He found one of my sources, sued the guy, this guy, Martin Tripp, who was like a factory line worker at Tesla. He hired some security goons from Uber who had been thrown out at Uber to harass this poor man. And then I kept writing about the company. At one point, I wrote a story. I had seen an email where Elon directed his engineers to stop doing a test on the brakes in each and every car that was rolling out of the factory. Because this was during the Model 3 ramp. And the cars were just, I mean, they were, they were plotting out of, I don't, I don't know. I don't know a word, the, the kind of graceless landing that they were making as they left the factory. It's, it's a plot. These, these cars were just failing for these break and roll tests and slowing down the production riot uh, line. So Elon said, just stop doing the test. And I published that on a light day in the market. It was probably like around the July 4th holiday and it moved the stock a little bit. And after that, Elon freaked out. He accused me of taking money from a short seller named Jim Chanos to pay my sources inside of his company to say negative things about the company. He said that I was being paid to write negative things about the company, which is not true. I was being paid to write things about the company by my employer, Business Insider. There's something about journalism that he doesn't really consider a legitimate job. After that, he he went on this like Twitter rampage for a couple of days. Wait, wait, but just to be clear, a Twitter rampage yeah. at you. He was adding you, um, and it was yeah. going on and on. Yeah, I tweeted that out that Mariah Carey song. Why are you so obsessed with me? I think that's that was the only that was like the pettiest thing that I did. But other than that, I kind of really enjoyed myself to be perfectly honest. Yeah, but what fun. did it feel like, you know, at the time? I mean, again, he wasn't the guy that he is today, the richest, supposedly the richest guy in the world, CEO of these two big companies. What did that feel like being attacked like that? Because, A, he was attacking your your professional integrity, but it was also, we know that he's got just legions of fans, you know. Um, oh, that, that, just. Yeah. Oh, I always call them forever virgins. 
And I don't know if that can I say that on the pod? Yeah, you can say what you want. But, I mean, <laughs> these guys, he's not your dad. Elon isn't your dad and he doesn't care about you. That's what that's what I don't understand about his fad boys. But they're very, very aggressive. I don't have open DMs. Like I'm not one of those journalists who's like, I think those people are crazy. Like, why would you keep your DMs open? I I, I just, I, I don't know. I, I kind of enjoy the attention, I guess. <laughs> well, let, let me ask you this. What, what do you think after the years reporting on him, having him attack you personally, when you look at what's going on right here, you look at the fact that, that Tesla is his most liquid asset, right? He's long, I think, 15% of Tesla. It was a $1.2 trillion market cap company as highs a year ago. Now it's about $534 billion. He's been selling stock for the last year. First, he said to pay taxes. Then when he made the bid for Twitter there, we suspect that he's pledged a large part of his existing holdings in Tesla. If somebody said, oh, yeah, like, let's do a trade. I'll give you a bunch of my Twitter stock for a bunch of Tesla stock. Nobody in their right freaking mind would take that trade. Nobody in the world. Not last year, not the year before, not any time. At no time would say, hey, would anyone say this? Hey, give me a bunch of your Tesla stock for Twitter stock. Oh, yeah, definitely. No. But that's essentially what Musk is doing right now. He is selling Tesla to keep the lights on at Twitter. And for as long as he is repulsive to advertisers, which... I don't think he can change. I don't think he wants to change. So there's that. Like, I just don't see how he makes money off this thing. Based on my reporting from people who've just left Twitter, he didn't really seem to understand how Twitter made money in the first place. He likes the idea of engagement. I mean, he keeps tweeting out um, some of the kind of user growth numbers and the engagement numbers. But here's the thing. He's the largest account on the platform, and he's literally doing this was you know what trump used to do every morning he'd wake up he'd get on the shitter he'd take his iphone out and he'd start tweeting crazy shit and then people would be basically be discussing that on twitter all day long right and this is exactly what musk is doing every morning and the point that i would just make is that yeah people think it's fun for now i don't find it particularly fun i know a lot of people who are going to be leaving it advertisers are going to be leaving it so he never thought that the advertising model he did say this before he closed on the deal was the right thing he wanted to do subscriptions well he tried to do subscriptions what happened it pissed off a lot of advertisers right and so it pissed off a lot of people and so again i mean i think what he's doing is it seems to be you know a little bit of a tempest in a teapot, if you will. And it's sooner or later. This is my point. This is why Twitter and Tesla are really linked because Tesla shareholders have been underwriting this gambit with Twitter, okay? And sooner or later, they're gonna say, hey brother, you better get your ass back here and start making these cars again, right? What, even if they're in tents and they're crappy and the brakes don't work and this and that or whatever, that's the business that we have chosen, right? That's what we've invested in. And all of the time that he's spending in San Francisco at Twitter, tweeting all day, is literally, look at the stock. It sold off 25% in less than a month it's since he took wild. over Twitter. Yeah. Wild. It's wild. The, and the Tesla board, I mean, if you've spent any time watching the company, you know that there's no one who can tell him what to do at Tesla at all. There are no adults in that room. It's like 
Robin Denholm, who he's essentially paid off, his brother, who's essentially Woody from Toy Story. Like, there's nobody there to say, Elon, like, come back to work. Won't there be shareholder lawsuits? Won't there be people leaving the board for fear that they are going to be sued for being asleep at the wheel while he was off doing this other thing? Maybe, but he doesn't care. So that's all possible. But Elon was going to Elon no matter what. Tesla shareholders have to understand this is the guy they chose. You know, this is this is the guy who said back in 2018, I don't think we're going to have any more bet the company moments like we just had to do ramping the Model 3. He, he admitted that Tesla was on the verge of bankruptcy, all that stuff. Well, he bet the company again. He did it again to you. And not even on, on a Tesla thing, a Tesla car. He bet the company on Twitter. Like that is so embarrassing for all of you. You have to, I, my old pin tweet was Elon Musk is on Facebook taking screenshots from my profile and tweeting them out to his friends. If you're a Tesla shareholder, you need to sit with that. You need to sit with this Tesla shareholders. He went to the casino, put a bunch of money on Twitter and threw Tesla in there too. He seems like kind of like the kind of person who, if he's going down, we're all going down. You know, there will be no survivors. Like if this ship is going down, he's going to take the shareholders. He's going to take probably a couple of family members. Like, I don't know. People forget that big things fall apart. He's put a lot at risk. He likes to do that. That should have been obvious. I keep saying like, it would, it would kind of be funny if Tesla bought Twitter, but it would also not shock me at all. No, I, I th- after the Solar City thing that he did back in the day, yeah. I mean, I, it, it wouldn't shock me, um, except that that Tesla's shares would absolutely get decimated. So think about that. Hey, listeners, it's Dan here. I want to tell you about a company that I'm really excited about. It's called Current. It's a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. I'm a new Current customer. It's already helping me and my entire family manage our finances, all from one easy-to-use app. So try Current for yourself and get the app by going to current.com slash OK. That's current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. All right, Lynette, let's switch gears here. This this SBF, the Sam Bankman-Fried FTX equation. God. Now, it's it's funny. It it kind of is a pretty amazing situation. It kind of reminds me a little bit of just kind of 2001 and some of the corporate malfeasance that was kind of uncovered during that bear market. And, you know, this one, though, I guess a lot of people saw coming. I mean, whether it was going to be SBF or somebody else. It's just like, you know, there's a lot of like, you know, traditional finance people who are looking at these guys and just saying they're all a bunch of frauds. They didn't have the receipts at the time. But talk to me a little bit about how you've been covering 
finance for over 10 years and you've had your finger on the pulse, you talked to a lot of big investors. I mean, the speed in which this thing came unwound from him being the kind of buyer of last resort, the savior to actually being essentially on the run in the Bahamas and and with, you know, billions and billions of dollars missing. What do you think the scale of this situation is, do you think there's a potential for some sort of contagion to traditional finance, or do you think this will be fairly well contained within this kind of crypto ecosystem? I have no idea. I know a lot of hedge funds, a lot of rich people are going to lose money on this. It is stunning to me how many sophisticated people are like, yeah, crypto, definitely a thing. Like I muted Bitcoin, the word, like in 2000. 13, I was like, I cannot believe this, this nonsense is catching on in it. I don't know. There's something about people when they hear something that doesn't make sense, they just default to, well, I guess I just didn't get it and I must not be brilliant. Because every time I've ever heard somebody talk about this stuff, it's just, it seems like it's not offering anything. It offers nothing that we don't see in traditional finance, nothing that we don't see in traditional finance but like more expensive and slower. So I was like, this is, I, I, I don't understand this. The, the, the concept of trust is what these guys were trying to make money off of. You don't trust traditional finance. Um, we can have a trust list system because you put everything on the blockchain. But this is not a concept that can be screwed with. This is thousands of years old. The very principle of it is what they were really trying to change in the game. The technology is software for software's sake. It's, it's software masturbation. It's useless. <laughs> Sam Bigman Friedman dresses like a kid who just got home from summer camp and desperately needs a haircut. This is not serious. I can't believe these people are so deeply unserious. Well, it's funny. I, I actually think many of them were too serious. And and I will say this is that, you know, I've tried to keep an open mind about it. And I think some of the smartest people that I know in tech and finance are pretty intrigued by it, put their money where their mouth is. It reminds me a little bit um, about, you know, the dot-com in 2001 and two, a lot of people were saying like the internet is a fraud. Look at all these fraudsters. Look at how, you know, we just didn't need to do this in a digital world or whatever. And, and there's a lot of parallels, you know, it's kind of hard to see that now because I don't think we're even done with all this. I mean, there's probably, you know, a handful of large exchanges where a lot of people, you know, have been trading cryptos on over the last few years are going to go under these stable coins are probably going to go under and it's going to have to rebuild itself if there's any value in it. But I guess the, the, the lasting thing that I'll just say, you know, I saw a headline today, you know, that Sequoia is apologizing to its investors for its investment in FTX. But but just think about this. I mean, some some very, you know, venerable financial institutions, you know, both VC and, and, and public markets associated, they all bought this stuff hook, line and sinker. So maybe SBF and some of the other ones that we've seen blow up this year are just the tip of the iceberg. And again, this goes back to what I said about all this other pockets of over exuberance in the, in the markets here. You know, the things that overshoot to the upside, they also do to the downside. So if you think this thing is over anytime soon, it's not likely. All right. Well, let me tell you what is over. This podcast, Lynette, 
I really enjoyed speaking to you. I really enjoyed your work. I've enjoyed it for 10 years. I thought the post that you wrote this week on Business Insider was fabulous. Everyone should go out and read it. I also thought your thread from election night on all the work that you've been doing investigating Elon Musk over the years was really interesting. I also find it interesting that he gets very aggravated by what you write about him. So I guess keep doing it here because again, I miss his attention. If he wants to tweet at me, he absolutely can, you know? All right. It well, was a good a time. We'll, I we'll, still we'll, remember it fondly. Well, we'll at him with this podcast. So listen, Lynette, we really appreciate you being on with us. We hope you'll come back. Uh, so thanks a lot. Yeah, of course. If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.